Let's now turn for our scripture reading to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll begin reading at uh, verse 17 down through 26. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took a cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And our text is that last verse. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this text uh, refers to what is past, and that is Christ's death. But it also refers to what is present. Uh, we proclaim that death at the Lord's table. And it speaks of what is future. We do so until he comes. And uh, so here we are on uh, May 21st, 2023, at a worship service in which we eat bread and drink wine, and thereby, presently, we proclaim, we declare uh, something that is long past, something that happened uh, almost 2,000 years ago, but it's something which we consider to be absolutely of central importance to our lives today. And this event of uh, so many years ago has been proclaimed in the church down through the centuries, throughout the world, in generations past. And it will continue to be proclaimed for however long uh, before the Lord Jesus returns again. And as Christians, we may, actually we must, we certainly ought to by faith, see our very lives positioned or aligned in relation to these, these three points, if you will. Positioned in relation to what happened long ago before we were born, and positioned in relation to what will take place perhaps long after we even die and leave this life. But at present, we ought to know ourselves in relationship to these events, and we ought to see the significance of what is happening here this morning in terms of the proclamation of the word and our participation in the sacraments in relation to those crucial events. 
that shape our lives, that define our lives as fixed points that give stability and meaning that the world simply does not possess. The Lord's Supper orients our lives in relation to Christ. Now, I I say that word orient, maybe to help you understand it, just think of what it means to be disoriented. I don't know about you, but I sometimes get disoriented when I'm uh, trying to find an address, and I might not have my Google Maps with me on my phone. And uh, I get turned around, and uh, at some point I may not know which direction I'm going, and I don't know whether to stop or to turn around or go the other direction because I don't really know where I am, and I don't know where I'm going. And sometimes I don't really know where I've been. Now, that's uh, a kind of disorientation in terms of, of space and uh, sometimes that happens with respect to time. I remember only one time that I went under anesthetic and when I came out, I did not like it at all because I didn't know, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know what happened. I hardly knew who I was. I was that disoriented. But you know, brothers and sisters, our world is totally disoriented when it comes to those basic kinds of questions. They don't know where they came from. They don't know where they're going. They don't know the significance of their own lives. They don't have the kind of perspective that gives any certainty as to the meaning of why they're even alive. But our text gives us this profound perspective in Christ, a perspective on our redeemed lives. And we're going to consider that in view of those three things, those three perspectives of our text, uh, beginning with a joyful commemoration. You know, sometimes uh, uh, funeral services or memorial services are called a celebration of life. Personally, that's not my favorite uh, description of a funeral, but uh, I understand the point of it. And uh, very often it's intended to communicate a kind of thankfulness and a kind of positive uh, perspective on the life that has been lived, despite the fact that that life has come to an end. And uh, a kind of celebration of life might involve a kind of public uh, proclamation or declaration of features of that life that uh, would make it uh, a good life or a, an interesting or a fruitful or a productive life or something to to commemorate and to be grateful for. And that can indeed be done in a very edifying way. It can be done in a way that glorifies God. But our proclamation at the supper is not a celebration of life. It's a celebration of death. That's quite different, isn't it, than a celebration of life that takes place at a funeral service. It's not the details of the death that are proclaimed in a way that is presented as something to be happy about to rejoice in, to commemorate. But we use the language of celebration with respect to the death of Christ. Is that appropriate? Well, there certainly ought to be a kind of seriousness and solemnity as we consider the sufferings and death of our Savior. And we remember the reason for his sufferings. Yes, it is proper that we should be humbled. It is proper that we are affected and moved by the great cost of our redemption and the suffering of the Son of God. But it is also proper that we commemorate this death, that we remember it, proclaim it with joy. 
The memory of his death is something to keep alive. In that sense, it's something to commemorate. In the Lord's Supper, our, our, our form actually says that we cherish, we cherish the blessed memory of the death and suffering of God's dear Son. You see, the death of Christ is at the, the very heart of the gospel. You might say it is the heart of the gospel. It's central to the message that every true Christian church proclaims constantly. It's that one and only message of, of salvation from sin. And a salvation from sin through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ who endured the judgment that we deserve and thereby delivered us from the wrath of God and obtained for us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's at the heart of the church's proclamation. That's at the heart of the Christian message. A church that doesn't proclaim that is not a Christian church. Whatever they might call themselves. They've lost the message. They've lost the center and the heart of what the, what the Christian church is all about. Galatians 6 verse 14, Paul says, God forbid that I should boast or glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't say in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say in the marvelous teaching of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say in the miracles of Jesus Christ. Well, of course, all those things are marvelous and wonderful, and they are proclaimed continually as well, and they are essential to the message. But their meaning and the meaning of the resurrection of Christ itself hinges upon the significance of his death and what he accomplished for our redemption. That wasn't merely through teaching. It wasn't through providing uh, the healing of bodies or raising the dead through miracles. It wasn't simply by, by virtue of his incarnation. He took upon himself our flesh and was born of a woman to redeem us from the law by bearing its curse. And his resurrection was not simply a, a great miracle that gives credibility to the fact that he was a miracle worker and an amazing person. But it's by his resurrection that we are justified because it testifies to the all-sufficiency of his death as a payment for sin and proclaims his victory over it for us. Christ gave his body and blood for the remission of our sins. And he gave us this supper as a constant memorial. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come at the cross. He sealed my pardon, paid my debt, and made me free. And it's by the death of Christ then that we, that we get our bearings, so to speak. That is, we, we know our, our position relative, uh, to where we are in relation to fixed and unchanging points of truth. Now often we might, we might uh, get our bearings in terms of where we are in life. And uh, judging from the average lifespan, uh, you teenagers or those in your 20s, you might say, well, you know, about maybe a quarter of my life is behind me. Right? And those who are in their 40s might say, I'm now middle-aged. I'm kind of at the halfway point. Half of my life is behind me. And if I live to an average lifespan, I've got half before me yet. Or you enter your 60s and you realize, oh, I'm kind of probably in the fourth quarter at this point. I'm getting closer to the end. But none of those things are certain, are they? 
Any one of us could die tomorrow. And we could be totally mistaken in terms of our our sense of where we are in relation uh, to our lifespan. In this past week, some of you are aware that two uh, prominent uh, uh, PCA uh, ministers and leaders passed away. One rather expectedly, uh, Dr. Tim uh, Timothy Keller passed away after uh, three years of battling pancreatic pancreatic cancer. But there is another prominent leader in the PCA. His name is Harry uh, Leader. I, I, I met him a couple years ago and worshipped in uh, Briarwood um, PCA in Birmingham, Alabama. Prominent man, seventy-five years old, a few years older than than Timothy Keller, but but still in the midst of a very active life in ministry. But he crashed into a dump truck, and that was the end of his life suddenly. And that could happen to any of us. And so we are rather uncertain if we try to get our bearings and try to assess our position in life simply in terms of an average lifespan and in terms of what we hope and expect maybe to accomplish, our our plans for the future, all very uncertain. We have no certain orientation based on those things. But what about with reference to eternity? Where are we in relation to these fixed points? Are we even on the pathway? Are we on the way? Do we know ourselves in relationship to these these things? Is that where we get our bearings? The Christian life is oriented or positioned in relation to these events of ultimate meaning. Meaning that in terms of their significance extends beyond both the beginning and the end of our life on earth. Now the history of God's grace, redemptive history, the history of God's work, and the manifestation of his work and grace in this world, it begins earlier than that, earlier than the cross of Christ, right? And it extends beyond that, but its middle point, at its middle point stands the cross. It's the center of the Christian system. It's as if there are, there are two eternities that hinge on this event. There are no uh, two eternities. Uh, there's one eternity, but from, from a perspectival point, we think of eternity past, eternity future from our uh, creaturely perspective, but the very hinge is the cross of Jesus Christ, of past decrees and works of God and of future glories. This is the pivot. In the cross of Christ, I glory, towering over the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. The death of Christ marks a joyful commemoration, and that's a crucial perspective in the life of faith. But secondly, we consider uh, a visible proclamation that our text speaks of. You proclaim, present tense, the Lord's death till he come. Teaching is always joined with action at, uh, at the table. As we partake of the Lord's table, we also bear witness. Uh, form number two speaks of this on page 46. Uh, it says, uh, when the Lord said, do this in remembrance of me, he ordained this holy supper as a constant memorial and visible proclamation of his death. He says, as we partake, uh, it says, as we partake, therefore, we bear witness that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent by the Father into the world to take upon himself our flesh and blood and to bear the wrath of God on the cross for us. We confess 
that he came to earth to bring us to heaven, that he was condemned to die that we might be pardoned, that he endured the suffering and death of the cross that we might live through him, and that he was once forsaken by God that we might forever be accepted by him. That is our confession of faith from the heart. And in that connection, we literally recite uh, our Christian faith at the table as we join together reciting the Apostles' Creed. This historic testimony of what the triune God has done for us in Christ. We understand and we believe that the bread signifies our Lord's body given for us and the wine his shed blood. And by eating and drinking, by the action that we take, we thereby testify that his death is our salvation. That's what a believing participation in the supper always involves. A public and also a personal testimony. A testimony of our actions, a testimony of our words, a testimony of our hearts as we receive this Savior. It testifies of our faith in Christ crucified. Each of us together and uh, all of us, each of us for ourselves and all together say, we take you, O Christ, as the only sacrifice for our sins and for our food and drink to eternal life. You are the only Savior of mankind. And we proclaim this together. Uh, we proclaim it uh, to one another. We proclaim it to all who are present here, whether partaking or not, whether believers or not. We proclaim it to the invisible world of angels and principalities. We proclaim it to the world. And this ongoing proclamation in the real time of the Christian church will continue until Christ returns. You see, our, our text assumes, doesn't it, that the glory of God will be revealed in the church by Christ Jesus through all generations. You see, that's why our, our young couples are not afraid to bear children and to bring newborn infants into this world, in this evil age, an age in which there are a lot of things that from a human perspective might frighten us and perhaps deter us from bringing children into such a world. But we are not uh, controlled and ruled by our fears and by our sense, but we live by faith. And we know that God has called us also to continue to uh, raise up generations that will proclaim his death, that will believe this message of the gospel and continue to bear testimony to it throughout their lives in the lives of successive generations. To him be glory in the church through all generations, forever. Amen. It is the Lord's death we proclaim. The one who lives, who was dead, and he lives forevermore. And again, notice our text doesn't say, you proclaim the Lord's death as long as you live. Generations have come and gone since the time these words have been written, and many more may yet follow. But this proclamation will continue until the consummation when the kingdom comes in its fullness. And in that sense, we might add a, another feature to this orientation. We are oriented to uh, what happened in the past, thousands of years ago. And we're oriented to what certainly will take place when Christ comes again. But we're also oriented together as belonging to this vast community of faith that are marching along 
that are confessing the truth together and will continue until Christ comes again. And again, that involves a perspective that is, is greater than our own personal individual lives, isn't it? It's an outlook of faith that sees the church as God's great work, which will continue. And we are part of that now on earth, the church militant, and will continue as the church triumphant, and then forever when our Lord Jesus returns. And that leads us finally to consider uh, that uh, our lives are oriented in Christ in a confident anticipation till he comes, till he comes. Not until the rapture, not until this silly notion that suddenly all the believers are just going to be snatched out of here and people are just going to wonder where they went and continue as they were. Not going to happen, folks. You proclaim the Lord's death till the millennium appear and a thousand year reign takes place. No, till he comes. That's the day of judgment. That's the day of the restoration of all things. That's the perspective of faith. Jesus gave us this future orientation in the Gospels. We have it in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse uh, 16, even at the institution of the Lord's Supper, which followed the celebration of the Passover. In verse 16, he says, I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You have similar language. Well, in verse 18, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 28 and 30 of the same passage. You are those who have continued with me in uh, my trials that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Lest there should be any doubt that this refers to the heavenly uh, kingdom. In the book of Revelation, our Lord Jesus in chapter 3, verse 21 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So the orientation at the administration of the supper is towards that consummation when Christ himself will come. It looks to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus was parting from his disciples shortly after the supper was instituted. But that departure was not not permanent. So we heard him speak in uh, verse uh, 29 of Matthew chapter uh, 26. I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you, my Father's kingdom. The same thing is repeated in Mark 14, verse 25, in slightly different words. In the meantime, the the, the apostles, they had work to do. They had sufferings to endure. But there is a definite fixed point ahead of them as well as one behind them. Jesus describes that in Luke chapter 12, verse 37. He says, Blessed are those servants whom the Master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. The Lord's Supper helps us to keep our bearings to know ourselves in relation to these two fixed points, the death of Christ and the glorious consummation. It's not even the death of Christ and our personal eschatology or our personal uh, 
death and going to be present with the Lord. Oh, that's a great comfort to Christians. But the outlook of faith extends beyond that. According to the New Testament, it's not even really fixed or focused on that. But on the return of the Lord Jesus himself. It's the Master's return. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb that Jesus alludes to there in Luke chapter 12. And we must not get, get disoriented. We must not get distracted. We must not get so caught up in the things of this life that this perspective is dimmed or dulled or fails to exert a sanctifying, transforming influence upon our lives. You know, that's only going to come through faith. And such faith is only nourished and, 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 and kept vivid and alive by getting our perspective shaped by the Word of God. Not by current events, not by all those activities that uh, are necessary and are part of our busy lives in this world, but they must not so intrude into our minds and hearts that we lose this perspective. At the Lord's Supper, we see our lives in relation to Christ. I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, Jesus said. And how comforting is the memory of those words with you. We have the promise of Christ's spiritual presence indeed in the Lord's Supper. And there he, uh, maybe I should say, here he nourishes us. And he supplies us with grace to take up our cross daily and to deny ourselves and to confess our Savior. And in all tribulation, as the forum says, which we'll read shortly, in all tribulation with up lifted head, expect our Savior from heaven. There he will make our bodies like unto his glorified body and take us to be with him and eternity, in eternity. That's the perspective, that's the outlook of partaking of him in the present, in view of what he has done in the past, in the light of what he will do in the future when he comes again. Amen.